not not certain, I have no certainty about the future, that we're going to see inflation fall about as fast as it rose. It'll suddenly go away and the interest rates will come back down and the debt fears will come back down and the stock market will respond by, oh, joy, and go up. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill up the ball with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach. I have a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. Do you have anything as top of the list? Yes. Uh, Michael Brush, who you probably never heard of, who is uh, one of the regular contributors on MarketWatch, wrote an uh, wrote an article that said inflation is going to fall just as fast as it rose. And that's investors cue to enter the stock market. Um, I think he's right. I don't know whether entering the stock, entering the stock market is a separate issue. I'm not going to discuss that, but here's the point. Jake talked about this first hour. And I think since inflation and interest rates are pretty much on everybody's minds, I wanted to hit this. The numbers for short-term inflation have gone to z- near zero and they're staying there pretty tightly. They're not perfectly there, but we were seeing short-term inflation, meaning month-to-month inflation, pretty low on average, about where the Fed wants it long-term. All we have to do is keep it that way for a year, which looks more and more like it's happening. And a year from now, inflation will be down to low single digits, pretty much where the Fed wants it. And the result, the psychological result would be that we had this spike of high inflation and then it went away. Yeah. And And when it goes away, by definition, interest rates will start to come down. All right, let me, let me throw in the numbers here because we talk about them and people go, where are you getting these? If you go to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, um, which is part of the Labor Department, uh, you will find out that we're looking at the Consumer Price Index. That's who provo- provides data on the CPI. Now, you've heard us in the past talk about how the CPI is not a good measurement. It includes a bunch of stuff that fluctuates all over the place and so on. But it's also the thing that is quoted by far the most often. Um, So we're going to use it. We're going to talk about it. Um, This year, we had two massive spikes of inflation. Uh, year for for month to month, a one percent jump, a one. Well, we had more than two. We had a one point two percent jump, and we had a one point three percent jump, month to month. That is just absurdly high. If you magnify that and say this is an annual thing, you're talking about potentially twelve and thirteen percent inflation. Well, that's what they're experiencing in Europe. Well, then in July we had none month to month, and and then. In August, we had 0.1%. If you magnified that up, it's only 1.2. It's actually a little bit more, 1.3% because of the way you have to calculate for monthly versus annually. But it's a really low number. So when we're looking at the last two months, this is after all the a lot of those big interest rate hikes, it looks like we're coming under control. But at the same time, gas prices fell. So uh, I'll come back to you. Those are the numbers. We're, the last two months that we have data, it came back at very low to no inflation. And we're about to get September's data. I think we're getting it this coming week on 
what inflation was, and it's likely to be in the very, very low numbers again. Because last year we had such high numbers, to continue that high amount would mean we would still have to be having the same difficulty getting things like toilet paper and baby food formula. And the supply chain Mm -hmm. snarls are really getting ironed out. They're almost fixed at this point. A big piece of inflation is the value of a house. A big piece of inflation is the value of cars. And we, we've talked about the fact that used cars, we've, we've written about this and talked about it during the pandemic. Used cars were going, were inflating, their prices were inflating at 20, 30, 40% a year. And now they're falling. Yeah. Uh, the prices of housing in the United States, on average, I read this week, yeah, it's from Cox. Probably down about 3%. Cox Automotive, they do uh, a series of uh, indexes. One of them is called the Mannheim Used Vehicle Value Index. And what we're seeing is month over month, month, over month drop in prices in used cars. But I'm, I, and, and the same thing is true. Houses are starting to come down. And with interest rates um, on mortgages as high as they are, the, I am very confident the price of housing will come down. Mm-hmm. Actually, not just level off, which would be zero inflation. It'll right. come down. Yeah, and it, we're already starting uh, to see it come down from the very top, and the and, very and top was around February. It's interesting the uh, the number of the cars. Well, we just bought a vehicle last week. When we ordered the vehicle, there was an eighteen month wait, and the I mean that was we had to wait, and and they got it out quicker than that because they discontinued the model, and we got the tail end of it and all that. But when we got there to pick it up after waiting, I think, 13 months, there were four sitting there with no buyers. The supply chain has opened up. Vehicles are coming off the assembly lines in the United States now, and they're filling up the dealer's lots. The dealers are now looking for people to buy their cars again, which means that the discounts are going to hit the cars again, which went away for a while, and the price of cars are going to start to fall. What we're seeing across the board in the real world where you and I go out and look at things and buy things is that prices are stabilizing and beginning to fall. Yeah. And yes. Compared with a year ago, they're high, but they're starting to come back down again now, which means in a few months, we're going to be looking at the consumer price index down, possibly down from the previous yeah. year. To give some numbers on that, the Mannheim used vehicle index that's from Cox automotive. And if you hear the media quoting, this is usually what they're quoting. They don't come out and tell you what they're quoting. They'll just say used car vehicle prices are up or down or whatever. This is generally what they're quoting. If we look a year back from August, uh, prices are still up at about 5 or 6% from what they were a year ago. But they're up like 30% from where they were two years ago. Okay. But if you look at where they are from the top of the market, Uh, they're down about 10% in price. And that price drop is increasing month by month at this point. We're seeing it, and it has everything to do with rising interest rates. It just costs more money to buy a vehicle. Uh, The interest rates are coming up. That means the payments are going up, and that's what we buy vehicles based on. Nobody knows what a $50,000 vehicle payment is going to be off the top of their head unless they're looking for a vehicle this moment. They're, they're saying, I can afford $300 a month or $500 a month, whatever their price point is. That's what they're talking about. And then they say, all right, how many months should I run this out? 72 months, 60 months? That has an impact. But if interest rates are 7%, then you can afford a lot less car. 
for the same payment. And that's what's bringing the prices down. And it's going to continue. And it means that if you've been waiting to sell your used vehicle because you think the prices are going to go up again, I don't know of anybody that's doing that. But if that's you, then you should probably go ahead and sell it because they're going to continue down. And I, there's a leading indicator that the it's not in the index of leading indicators, but I think it's a very important one. It's called the Digital Price Index from Adobe, Adobe Analytics. Year over year, the DPI is down 1%. In other words, the stuff you buy online as opposed to the stuff you buy in the store. The digital price index is now down 1% from a year ago. And it tends to lead. When you look at the history of it, you discover that it if it shoots up before other prices shoots up and it goes down before other prices go down. And month and, over month, we're down 2% on that index. So, so over a year, yeah, okay. it's down for month over month. It's big down. So if that were an annualized thing, we don't do that. But for some reason, the media loves to do it. There would be a ginormous price decreases happening. And I'm going to go out on a limb and make prediction here. We are on the cusp of a bull market mm -hmm. because the Fed is not going to raise interest rates as far as they're saying. Because, in, because inflation is going to come down. Because every time they say we're going to raise interest rates to... 4.6% or something like that. They say, but we're data driven. They always put a little caveat in there. However, that's totally dependent upon the data. They're all saying exactly the same thing, which means that there's some kind of propaganda machine working here. Yeah. They're all agreed in advance as a conspiracy to scare the heck out of everybody, to get employers to stop hiring so many people, to slow things down. And as a strategy, as a strategy, that's a fantastic strategy. It really is. It's called jawboning inflation. Right. Um, there are a lot of economists that are looking around going, whoa, they're going up too fast. They're going up too fast. Well, part of the reason why they're doing that is to get everybody into the expression of, hey, they've overdone it. Why? Why would you want to scare the world like that if you're the Federal Reserve? Well, because inflation, and we've talked about this over the last several years at length, inflation is in large part based in psychology, just like all the rest of money is. Prices go up because we're willing to pay higher prices to get the thing, or we expect higher prices to be there later on. Most of our price increases aren't because we expect prices to go up later in the year right now. They're still based on, I'm willing to pay that higher price because I want that thing. Well, we're seeing that fall off. Um, and that psychologically, when people go, oh, no, I don't want, that's too expensive. I don't want to buy that. Even though I want to buy that, I don't want to buy that. That's called destruction of demand. And they're doing that really well. And we're all getting this attitude. And I'm hearing it again and again. Things are getting too expensive. I can't afford to do that. If you go back to February, at the height of when the inflation was really booming in, Everybody was like, yeah, I got plenty of money. Prices are going up, but I'm okay with that. We're not saying that anymore. And in, in places like Europe, where the inflation is still going nuts, people are experiencing that they don't want to pay those prices, but it's the only price available. And their economy, their jobs are slowing. Their uh, pay is slowing. Here, pay is going up faster than inflation. So if people are getting this is across the board. There's obviously places where pay is not kept up with inflation. Don't get me wrong. But people hear me say that. They're like, well, that didn't happen to me. Well, it's on average and 
yeah, one foot in boiling water and one foot in dry ice has a really nice average, but your feet don't feel good. Um, I'm, <laughs> we're, we're painting a broad brush here. Pay has com- been coming up to above inflation now. And when that occurs and people are still saying things are too expensive, then the psychology of the Fed is working. They're raising rates that are having an impact on the big dollar items, which are trickling down in our minds to the small dollar items. And we're saying everything's too expensive. I'm cutting back, which helps lower inflation. Can I contrast this with, because I have a good memory of the late 1970s, early 80s when we had high inflation. Please do. I have a memory of studying it, but my memory of the late 1970s has more to do with lollipops, ice cream, um, and whether or not um, I'm learning to read. So please go ahead. Um, In the late 1970s and early 1980s, when I was very much in the business of buying things, because that's what I did, because I was a consumer doing consumer things. People would say very commonly, I heard people say this routinely, buy it now because the price will go up next year. And people were, we were getting double digit rate. I was working for the government at the time. I remember this with Cabbage Patch Kids, definitely. And, and, and what happened was we knew we were going to get a pay raise. So inflation wasn't that big of a deal. We could, we were aware, but we had this psychology of if you don't buy something now, it'll be more expensive in the future. So people are rushing out and buying things, borrowing money on credit cards to buy things because if you didn't buy them now, they'd be a lot more expensive in the future. That is called entrenched inflation, and that's what the Federal Reserve is jawboning, trying to jawbone out of existence right now, is the idea that I'll get the pay raise and I'll keep up with inflation, but you better buy it now quickly on borrowed money because if you wait, you'll pay more. What I'm hearing and seeing today is people are saying, I don't think I'm going to buy that. It's too expensive. So inflation has not become entrenched. As a matter of fact, I recently made a significant purchase online and I was looking at, well, it was a computer and I was looking at the price of computers and I said, oh, that's too expensive. Mm, That's too expensive. And I finally found one that had a major discount. They put it on sale that met the quality, the, the, the criteria I wanted. And I bought it, but I didn't buy the ones that were fully priced. And I see that happening here, there, and yonder. Uh, we, my wife and I go out to eat every once in a while. And we've discovered that one night a week, there's uh, several restaurants in the area have um, dramatically during the week, they have dramatically discounted meals one night a week. It's called a prefix. You can't order everything on the menu. You can order this one thing they're making and it's for about half the price of what you normally would pay in that restaurant for a meal. That's when we go to that's when we go eat and we're not poverty stricken, but we notice that the restaurant fills up on that and of course the objective from the restaurant's point of view was that was a night when there practically nobody was like Tuesday night or something like that where nobody goes out to eat so we 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 got everybody standing around doing nothing so what we'll do is we'll offer a discounted meal on this one night and fill up the restaurant and be able to pay people. And it's working. That is not entrenched inflation. That is resistance in the population to inflation. And I see that all over. It's one of the reasons I'm very confident, not not certain, I have no certainty about the future, that we're going to see inflation fall about as fast as it rose. It'll suddenly go away and the interest rates will come back down and the debt fears will come back down. And 
the stock market will respond by, oh, joy, and go up. Now, what about the current bear market? Yeah, I like it. I know that's disgusting. I like it. Why do I like it? Because there are companies out there that are zombie companies that are borrowing money to keep going. They're not profitable, and they were borrowing money at below inflation rates to keep going and they need to go away. Then the dead wood needs to be ripped out of the system. And I think it's, we're going to see that and it's not going to be pretty, but it's going to happen. Yeah. When we, when we look around and we see things, places like the meme stocks, GameStop, uh, I use them as an example because in the last 20 years, I bought games at GameStop. I would go and buy games there and play the games. I don't buy games there anymore. Games are purchased online. They're very easy to purchase online. GameStop is still selling them on DVD. The most gaming computers don't have DVD drives anymore. So, oh, then they say, well, we're we're selling for the Xbox or for any of the gaming stations. Whichever one, we when a new one comes out from Sony or from Microsoft or we're we're going to sell it at the. But most people buy that online too. So the profitability of GameStop it doesn't exist. And the plan to get to profitability doesn't exist. But during the pandemic, a lot of people jumped in that had money that was given to them by the government or they kept their job because the government gave money to their employer so that they could keep their job. And oftentimes didn't have anything to do while they were still being paid. It was like an enforced stay-at-home, in-your-house vacation, but you can't leave anywhere. And that's something that we don't have written record of any other time in the past. So a massive amount of people had this new opportunity to get into the stock market and buy things that they thought, I, I think GameStop's amazing, they would say. I used to buy my games there. Why is this price going away? This doesn't deserve to. The pandemic shouldn't put them out of business. I'm going to buy them. It wasn't the pandemic that was putting them out of business. It was their own business model. They hadn't adjusted with technology. And the last several rounds of executives, there have been multiple layers of hiring and firing of the top-level C-suite, not firing, of leaving, of the top-level C-suite executives at GameStop coming in, leaving in a very short number of months with a absolutely enormous bonus package for their leaving. Hundreds of millions of dollars has been paid out. Where'd they get the money? Well, they got it because they released more stock when people were buying the stock. And so these executives have come in and basically done nothing and left with huge amounts of money because the shareholders are happy to do that because they're excited about GameStop. There's no profitability still there. I mean, they could come up with some plan to bring their company into new technology and find some way of making money, but they they haven't really presented a good method to do it yet. And yet people, it still exists as a valuable enterprise. It's not doing anything it's losing money and it's got liabilities that are building up and the only money it's getting is from people giving them money because they have nostalgia about them that doesn't last let me point out the original idea of buying GameStop. stop for a very short period of time was GameStop was 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 valid and and what it was is some research some people researched it and realized 
the number of short sales of, of GameStop exceeded the number of shares. Yeah. So if the stock went up, the people who had borrowed the stock had to buy to it, sell it, had to buy it back, and they were going to have to buy more shares than existed, which means the price would go up dramatically. If, if the price ever started up, it would go up dramatically, and it did. After that, it became a stupid stock. Because people weren't shorting it anymore. And the shorts got blasted. People got their shorts blasted off, which is an interesting big meme by itself. But uh, after that, it just became insanity. And, and that kind of insanity marks the top of a bull market. Federal Reserve or no Federal Reserve, that bull market was doomed. As a matter of fact, if you go all the way back to 2019, we were saying in 2019, we need a bear market. We need a bear market. And we basically... I know this is a weird way of looking at it. This bear market began in 2020. Yes, it had a run up in the middle and it has been having a run down now, but this correction in the long in the in the price of the market, price of stocks is the same one that began in 2020 and got short-circuited, thank God, before it turned into a depression by the Federal Reserve and the United States government stimulating the economy. Now, the stimulus is being pulled back, and the natural course of the bear market is running out, and the meme stocks are collapsing. And in case you haven't noticed, Bitcoin is down a whopping two-thirds from its peak back in the good old days. That weren't when that these, long ago, back in which, January. <laughs> so Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. Uh, it, it is simply something that's traded and there was a lot of weird stuff being traded because people had too much money and too little, too much time on their hands during the pandemic or whatever. Right. Those things need to get wrung out of the system before they pile up on top of each other and collapse of their own weight. And it, we're doing a pretty good job of doing that. And the, the fact that Russia invaded Ukraine and China decided to have a very dysfunctional way of dealing with COVID has definitely affected prices in the United States because our economy is running along nicely and two of our big suppliers, Russia and China, aren't supplying much anymore. And the end result is that prices went up. When demand exceeds supply, prices go up. The Federal Reserve only has one tool, and that is to decrease demand, and they're doing a pretty good job of it. Yeah. Meanwhile, supply is gradually rebuilding and moving back into place. And I think it will all, I think sometime, sometime in 2023, it will balance out very nicely and we'll see everything return to something that we like to call normal. One of the things that a lot of people in the last two years heard again and again and again, pounded into the system, the prices are going up, it's hard to find them, where are they, we need more of them, chips, computer chips. For all things, for automobile manufacturing, for computers, for um, specifically for video cards so that you could mine more cryptocurrency and for all things, chip prices were going up because there weren't enough of them. Chip prices are way down right now, extremely far down and more plants are opening Near, nearly daily at this point because the money was spent a year and a half ago and two years ago. Uh, if you think about the time we were screaming about we need more chips, everything is shut down and we need more chips. That's when we started the plant constructions. This is when Arizona started getting, I mean, we've got a lot of big plants coming online, 
I said this back in February that Apple finally made the decision to move some of its chip manufacturing out of China. This is a big deal. And they're now announcing that um, they may have different chips in the phones that they sell in China than they, than they sell anywhere else, uh, which probably is not a good quality sign for what's going to happen in China's iPhone market. Uh, the reason is because the Chinese government requires them to use Chinese chips for the, to, for the phones that they're making in China, where the risk for the wrong chips being made in China, or there's big, big, big moves on that. Uh, the U.S.-China chip war is definitely under uh, full steam. We just put more more limitations on what chips could be sold and what technology could be used in, in American companies building chips in China. So they're simply not doing it. And these new, new plants that are coming up in Arizona, some of which were started five years ago, but under kind of semi-false pretenses, um, are picking up speed again, picking up steam again on production of chips. So this is something we predicted last year that we were going to get a glut of chips. When we look at the amount of money that was being spent in the chip manufacturing area, this is going to be a big innovative event for the next recession when the next recession came. That when engineers get out of work and in, in the tech sector and they go home and, and chips are easy, then they innovate and make really, really cool things that can start new businesses. Well, the timing of this is going... <laughs> Really, according to what we said, we didn't realize we were being that predictive because the chip surplus is hitting right now. Um, the things that are still broken in the supply chain, and there are some, are generally things that are weird. Like Ford's biggest manufacturing glitch right now is the lack of their logo. You've, did you read about this? The enamel no. and the color that's used for the blue around the Ford logo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I read about that. That's their biggest shortage. And it's not, it's not something you really shop around for because if you looked around, there's not a lot of that color thing that's being used in different places. So this, this is stuff that we're ironing out the big supply chain issues. We said we would. We said it would take a few years. We're starting to see that really kick in. Supply chains are getting more redundant and also easier. They were stretching all the way around the planet before. It's not like they don't do that now, but they're shorter stretches. A lot of them much shorter, and that's going to bring prices down as well. So it's not going to be very helpful for Germany. It's not going to be very helpful for the UK. Because that while they've made some chip plants in France and in Germany and the UK, it's on a very small scale compared to the amount of investment that went into building chip plants in the United States. You've got something to say. Yeah, it's one of those things that's in the background and, and we kind of assume it, but it's something that I think the listening public, presuming both of them are interested. All, all three of them like on some, some right. high listening days, yes. Germany has made a great deal of money and has been the driving force in European economy, largely through manufacture and export. And how they've done that is they've gotten their energy very, very cheaply from Russia. And much of what they've been selling is to China. Both Russia and China are in economic doldrums. That's the nicest thing I can say about them. 
They're both in trouble right now. The end result is that the Germany machine that drives the European Union can't get enough fuel to keep going. Yeah. And suddenly discovered that its number one customer doesn't want to buy stuff anymore. Yeah. Germany's statistics office on Friday said that industrial production was down 0.8% month over month, and down about 3% from February. That's a big deal. That is the driver of the German economy, and the German economy is the driver of the European economy. That, if and, we talk about a trickle-down effect. That is a major one right there. We get all upset about the fact that we don't export a lot, and so we don't sell a lot to the rest of the world. And, but, you know, we sell a lot to ourselves. Yeah. The consumer in the United States is the driver of our economy. The consumer is buying stuff too fast, so the Federal Reserve is trying to slow things down. In Europe, they're seriously concerned about having to shut industry down across Europe for the winter in order to keep the house people in the houses from freezing to death because they don't have enough gas. China, the other player, the other big global player, folks, they are still having a very significant portion of their economy shut down in any given week because of COVID. It is, it is, they are in, they're in severe pain, severe hurt over there, and they don't have effective vaccines. They refuse to use ours and theirs doesn't work. And as a result, they use quarantine, massive shutdowns to control something that's uncontrollable. We are living in the sweet spot in the world. And yeah. what happens historically when we get in that position, we've been in that position several times in the past. When we get in that position, our economy, our markets, and everything else ultimately wind up booming because we are leading the world out of the hole. Now, short term, there's definitely going to be some pain, uh, but the pain will be extremely mild compared with what everybody else is experiencing. Yeah. And so I just said that industrial production is down about 3% from February in Germany. In the sectors that are the most profitable, they're also the most linked to energy prices, chemicals, metals, ceramics. This is what Germany's known for, down about 8.5% since February. When you think of that as a major portion of the economy, being down 8.5% is a major contraction. Um, uh, Karstein Brzezinski, which is an he's an economist at ING Bank, which if you're going to hear economics about Germany, you should get it from Germany. Um, he says this is a sneak preview of more to come. High energy prices aren't going away. The Nord Stream one and two just got bombed. Um, this is this is going to be more making a contraction. This is a further quote: making a contraction of the economy inevitable. The only question is how severe such a contraction or recession will be. So that's Europe. That's what they're looking at. And there's nobody saying, no, this is fine. Everybody's making too big a deal of this. It'll be fine. Their economy is so centered on exports to China and, and imports from Russia to get the exports to China that they are really hurting right now. Combine all that stuff together. You're right. We're in a sweet spot. Our, our recession we're getting one at some point, and our recession is likely to be a lot less severe than what they're experiencing without the central banks going nuts over there. So just be aware, our central bank, we can point at them and say they're causing the recession. They're also dropping inflation. Their psychological impact is more important to us than, than we can kind of underline. And over China and, and 
Europe, they're not having the massive increases in interest rates. Or if they are, they're getting offsets with weird tax cuts at the same time in Europe and UK. Uh, it's just weird. They're not organized as well. And I know that's weird because during the pandemic, we were the least organized of the bunch. When it comes to the financial aspects of what we do, we're more organized than the rest of the world. That's nuts, but it's because it's the lifeblood of what we do. Um, and I think we beat on that subject quite a bit. Um, yep. In the meantime, we can talk about what to do now, today, for those of you that are saying, look, you keep telling me the interest rates are going up, but my bank is paying me nothing. Mm. Uh, and, and I hear that a lot. Um, when we talk about Series I bonds, there's a limitation. This is stuff that no foreign power owns Series I bonds from the United States. That's direct from the Treasury only to domestic participants. You must be a United States person to buy this stuff. Um, and there's, this assumes that you have good sa a good savings position to begin with. If you're concerned about the lack of interest that you're making and you have more than enough to take care of short-term debts or short-term obligations, um, putting some money in a Series I bond, you're going to lock it up for a year. You can't get to it. But the interest rate that's being paid there based on what inflation is right now is just better than any place else, else that you can see, particularly when you know that it's guaranteed by the U.S. government in the Constitution. So... The Series I bond is worth checking out. You can put $10,000 a person in there per year. Uh, and if that's all of your savings, don't do all of it. <laughs> you can put less than $10,000 in there too. If you need it for shorter term stuff, don't put it in there. If you need it over yes. the next year, don't put it in there. But it's a fantastic place to go if you've got enough money sitting in your bank, but you're concerned you're not getting interest on it. Another thing is that there are safe places to put your money, uh, including banks that are paying as high as 2.75% across the country right now. Right. Uh, and 2.5 is, is a pretty normal, in, in, that's pretty minuscule in the considering what inflation is running, but it's, it's out there and um, it isn't, don't assume. And it's easy to assume that because your money couldn't earn money in savings positions, just leave it in checking um, if you have significant amounts of money, there are places you can put it in your bank, uh, in, in government money market funds, and there's other places that are relatively safe where you can get a little bit of interest on it. And I think it's an important thing, to, although the, the mindset remains that my bank's not going to pay me anything. Well, right. as long as you leave it where they're not going to pay you anything, that's exactly what you're going to get. But yeah. if you move it to a higher interest rate position, and this is interesting too. If you go to your bank and say, I've just looked and said that uh, this bank that I saw online will pay me two and a half percent on my money. You're not paying me anything on my on my savings. This is savings, not CDs. If you if I do you have some place you can do that? They're like, Oh yes, we have this thing over here where we'll be glad to pay you two and a half percent in right. many cases. A lot of times that's available there. And we're about out of time. This is the personal wealth coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, this is the personal wealth coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. 
All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this stu- in, on this station, 1400 AM in Temple, since 1996. We've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also Man. have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational, and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, And so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people know phone tree during the week at 254-947-1111. You can reach that line tool free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.